is indeed a continuing joy to gather this way. And I have to tell you, Westmount, it's much warmer in here today. Uh, I am looking around at a warm glow. Uh, Westmount, you know what I'm talking about. Those of you that were responsible for this, and I just want to say from the bottom of my heart, thank you. Um, you never cease to amaze me, Westmount, and I just want you to know, too, you picked a really, really good week to do this. Um, this is a great boost, and uh, I am so encouraged by what I'm looking at here today. Uh, you are with me in every single way, smiles and all. So those of you that are responsible for this, um, thank you. Thank you. Beloved, let's pray. Father, we settle our hearts right now with praise. We settle our hearts now, Lord, with thanksgiving. That is our aim this morning. That is our heart now, to give you praise, to give you thanksgiving. Thank you, Father, for the blessings of creation, salvation, sanctification, and glorification. Thank you, Lord, that you give the kingdom of heaven to the poor in spirit. Thank you, God, that the meek shall inherit the earth. Thank you, Father, for the satisfaction you give to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy given and your mercy multiplied to others. Thank you, God, that you enable the pure in heart to see you. Thank you, Father, that you call peacemaker the sons of God. Thank you, Lord, that you give the kingdom of heaven to those persecuted for the sake of righteousness and stricken for your name. Thank you, God, that you turn persecution to joy and reward. Thank you that you turn dust of the earth to the salt of the earth. And thank you that you turn darkened rebels to lights on a hill. O loving and gracious Father, we offer up to you thanksgiving this morning. Keep our hearts right there. And today, as we consider salvation, challenge us, examine us, move us to meditate on what your word has to say to us. And it is to your word now that we turn. Help us, O Lord. Help us, mighty God, we pray. Amen. Well, Westmount, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7. Matthew, chapter 7. Of course, a month ago, I have to tell you, the seventh chapter of Matthew was not part of the plan today. A month ago, the seventh chapter of Matthew was not part of the plan. After our Galatians study, there were plans for another book, a summer series, and so on. However, those plans, like many of your plans, were put on hold because of coronavirus. Yes, this virus has indeed intruded our lives, hasn't it? And not just as a pop-in, right? It's not just a house call. But it's been a house stay. It's like that unwanted guest that doesn't just say hello. It's that unwanted guest that just stays. That's been COVID-19. As a result of that intrusion, that upheaval in your life, 
you are facing things that you didn't expect. You're facing things that you didn't anticipate, and possibly you're facing situations that you don't feel prepared to handle. Maybe some of those situations are growing in urgency and intensity. Now, to be clear this morning as we begin this mini-series, I'm not talking about physical situations. I'm not talking about shelter, and I'm not talking about food. Westmount, we know we are blessed in that regard, are we not? We have all those essentials. You know, it's a blessed thing when we talk to each other, and what do you keep hearing? I'm okay, I'm well, I have everything I need. And we're referring, of course, to food and shelter provision and so on. It's clear, I think, Westmount, to most of us, that we are well provided for in that sense. So I'm not talking about material goods. I'm not talking about the physical. No, no, no. No, the urgent needs I'm referring to are more of a spiritual nature. These are the situations and needs that really have come upon you suddenly. In fact, you probably over the past few weeks have wondered, how did I get here? How did I get here? The social restrictions that have led to what? Simmering restlessness, frustrations, and agitations that seem to have no end. Your home probably is feeling a lot more crowded these days. Your routines are cramped, and maybe you're finding your irritation level is up. Your personal space, of course, is gone. What about the uncertainty of what's ahead, the indefinite nature of it all? I mean, there is no end, they keep saying. What about that and what it's doing to you? Your, your plans are on hold. And, and friend, didn't you have plans? You had plans, right? Well, they're all on hold. And now you're being told to stay at home, shelter at home, isolate at home, and more, be content at home. And you struggle as day gives way to day and nothing changes with no end in sight. There's an urgency maybe rising there. For some, it is fear, it's anxiety, it's worry, and you quietly wrestle with them, trying to beat them down with a stick. You try to suppress them, but they keep growing. Questions that fly through your mind, like, what if I get this virus? Can my body handle this virus? Will I be one of these stats? What if a loved one gets it? What will I do if they're gone? Is this a sign? Is this the end of days? How should I look at this? Maybe all of these thoughts are racing through your mind. Westmount COVID-19 and the sweeping change with it has come upon us suddenly. And you're being confronted with spiritual emergencies that need immediate attention. You need spiritual first aid. That is why we will take this hold time upon us and administer some first aid with the word of God. We need to tend to some wounds. Now, the first emergency that we'll look at today is the one that drives this series, and I can't be clearer about that. It's imperative that this is the first thing pulled out of our first aid kit. It's imperative that we start here and that this leads the way. Today, we will talk about salvation. Salvation. This, of course, is our fundamental spiritual need. Church, without salvation, without regeneration, without rebirth, a new heart and a new mind, without that engine driving us, no other remedy or prescription will matter at all. I can't be clear on that. Without salvation, nothing else matters. There is no coping strategy. There is no remedy. There is no comfort without salvation. 
And if COVID-19 has revealed anything for some, it is this, that you have engine trouble. No, and we're not talking for the masses that would have nothing to do with God. We're not talking for the people that save COVID-19 would have nothing to do with a church on a Sunday. We're not talking about them. No, COVID-19 is exposing a first aid situation in the walls of churches far and wide. And it's this, a self-deception problem. A self-deception problem that can lie undetected when times are good. And it's a self-deception problem that is quickly exposed when times are not so good. And I know you agree with me with this. Nobody wants to be self-deceived. Indeed, it is the most dangerous deception. As we'll see today, and we'll see that engine trouble from the most unlikely group. And you have open in front of you a gospel that frames this church reality really throughout the whole book. Let me give you one example outside of our text. You might know Matthew 13. You might know it as the wheat and the tares, as the King James calls it. You might know it as the wheat and the weeds. And what's the point of that parable? Jesus teaches that the visible church today will shelter some that are not really of the church at all. That's what the point of Jesus' parable. It says, leave the church alone. It will have both wheat and tares. It's in Matthew 13. So we're confronted this reality right away that there could be those, could be those that we think or perceive that they are part of Christ in a sense, but really aren't. So we're already presented with this elsewhere in Matthew. More simply, along with that... This is the salvation 911 that we're going to see today. There are many that claim to know Jesus, but Jesus says of them, I don't know you. Now, with that introduction, let's be clear on a couple of things before we start. You can imagine with a heavy introduction like that, we need to make sure we're clear on a couple things, and we want to do that this morning. Number one. This is an important subject because salvation is the means of first aid. This is what we've alluded to already this morning. In other words, we're going to cover a lot of emergencies over the next few weeks, a lot of things you're dealing with. But listen, if you are not saved, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And again, we've alluded to this already. It's like the gold rush prospector can read all about how to dig for gold, pan for gold, handle gold, But if it's fool's gold, then none of that stuff matters, does it? What's the same thing here? I can show you in the word of God how to handle anxiety, boredom, idolatry, anger, all these things that we will look at. We will look at that. But if you do not have a genuine, born-again, regenerated heart, it is meaningless. We encounter this all the time. In pastoral counseling. In fact, there's an expression for it. Counseling to someone who is not saved is just pre-counseling. Because you can minister the word of God to an unregenerate heart, and it just falls on a hardened heart. You can see why this is so important to begin with. It's one important thing that we need to be clear on as we start, but there's another. Secondly, this first aid is for self-deception today. This is for you, and it's meant only for you. That's it. What do I mean by that? 
This is not what you think someone else needs. We got to take that cap off this morning. This is only for you, listener. It's only for you. It's not for what you think someone else needs. We're talking about self-deception today. We're going to see in our text people that were self-deceived. This is not others' deception. This is self-deception. The point today is not to fuel some spiritual witch hunt in this virus environment of others. That's not the point of this text. The point of this text is you. You. The point today of this passage is to combat self-deception with self-examination, healthy self-examination. The same reason that motivates you to go for those checkups, to do maintenance. That's the point of this text today. The point of this first aid, if I can put it squarely, is this. Could the increasing problems you're dealing with in this virus upheaval be a direct result of your spiritual condition? Could it be that you are deceived? Could it be that you are not who you think you are? Could it be that you're not standing where you thought you were? Again, this is what the Bible calls our attention to. Listen to me over and over and over again. 1 Corinthians 11, 2 Corinthians 13, 2 Peter 1. I can go on and on and on. The Bible constantly calls the church, calls professing believers, calls you and I to what? Examine ourselves. Examine ourselves. And we're going to see why that's important today. Called not to examine the spiritual condition of others. The Bible never says that. Never calls us to lay verdicts on someone else's salvation. We'll have none of that here today. The Bible calls us over and over again to examine ourselves. Who we are, where we are, and so on. The Word of God, in fact, says we need to do this because we are prone to self-deception. Hence, the Bible says, examine yourself. Friends, can I submit to you this morning as we begin? That has never been more needed than today. That call of Scripture to examine ourselves has never been more needed than today, and certainly in this virus environment. We have a lot of people professing Jesus, yet at the same time wondering why they're not coping with COVID-19. They are looking for all kinds of remedies in these times of distress. Yet the only remedy they need before anything else is the remedy of salvation. That was, of course, Jesus' point in the section that you have open in front of you. Particularly, these chapters in Matthew 5 to 7, they are famously known as what? The Sermon on the Mount. Well known. Well known. In this discourse, Jesus is not teaching, and here it is, he's not teaching against cults. He's not teaching against atheists. He's not even teaching against other religions. No. Jesus is contrasting so-called religion, in fact, the so-called religion of his people in that day. That's what he's speaking to. Religion, in fact, that is proposed to be set up on his word. That's what he's contrasting based on scripture. He's contrasting professed religion with true religion. And that's precisely why, if you consider this section, you hear things like this from the mouth of Jesus. He says this, you have heard it said, but what? But I say to you. He's not talking about things they've heard in the pagan nations around them. He's saying, you've heard it said, proposed to be the true religion among you, but I say to you, this is true religion. In other words, if we can paraphrase to today, you think this is true religion, Jesus says, but it is not. And Jesus says, I will show you. The nominally religious of the day will tell you that this is murder. And Jesus says, but no, I say unto you, it is this. 
The so-called spiritual of the day will tell you this is adultery. And Jesus says, no, I tell you it is this. That's the sermon from Jesus here in Matthew. A message to those claiming religion from the scriptures, from the Bible. I pray we can understand that this morning. That's what Jesus is speaking to. Any kind of religion and spirituality claiming to know the Bible. Jesus has something to say to that. As the sermon draws to a close, here in the seventh chapter at the end of it, Jesus brings this whole matter to a head, and that's where we will enter in. Again, these words from Jesus, church, are for us. They're for you. They're for me. Those that would profess to follow Jesus. Let's read them now. We're going to start in verse 13. Look at verse 13 with me as we read this section. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by the fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then... Well, I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Those are strong words from Jesus. Those are bold words from Jesus. But they are also clear words from Jesus, are they not? They can't be clearer. Let's consider them now, along with our salvation, as we seek first aid this morning. I pray... I pray, church, this will be a helpful checkup for us in such times. Our first consideration, then, will be to consider our entrance. Consider your entrance. Find that in the first two verses. Consider your entrance. Look at verse 13 again. Let me just read them again. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. You know, when you have two straightforward verses like that, you really don't even want to touch them. They say enough on their own, don't they? I mean, these are the types of verses from the mouth of Jesus that just say enough on their own. However, it behooves us in such an environment to at least point out a few obvious things, and I think we need to do that Today, let's consider four contrasts that are here 
in these two verses that help us think through our entrance to salvation. Number one, Jesus says there are two gates. Do you see that? He says there are two gates. There's a narrow one and there's a wide one. Just two. A narrow gate tells us that the entrance is what? It's restrictive. It's tight. You don't enter a narrow gate with luggage. You can't hang on to anything else. However, you can if you enter the wide gate. The wide gate. The wide gate is nice. The wide gate is spacious. In fact, there's lots of room for carry-ons. Bring it. That gate is wide enough for whatever else you please. You can bet your, bring your pet things, your isms, your skeletons. Bring them all in. However, a narrow gate is narrow. And a narrow gate, as Jesus says here, is salvation. It is the gate you enter when, here it is, you shed, you forsake sin, you shed and forsake self. That's the narrow gate. There is no room for anything else. A narrow gate is like the turnstile. It's like the turnstile, one by one. That's how confined and restricted it is. The wide gate is the one ushering people in en masse. That's the wide gate. Floods of people at a time. It has no limits, no checkpoints. Come on in, all of you, all at once. It's the sea of hands raised in the air with that call as the music plays quietly in the background. That's the en masse entry here. It's the flood of people all walking the aisle all at once. That's the picture here. That is not the picture of the narrow gate that strips you bare. The wide gate says, bring whatever you like. The narrow gate is described by Jesus elsewhere like this in Luke 14, 33. Hear the words of Jesus. Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. All of you that does not renounce all that he is, all that he has, before you go through that turnstile, that narrow gate of salvation, cannot be my disciple. Beloved, let's say it this way. Claiming Christ while clinging to all that one has, claiming Christ while clinging to all that one has, is self-deception. There is only one narrow gate to salvation. And church, consider your entrance. Two, Jesus says there are two ways. Two ways, a hard way and an easy way. A hard way and an easy way. A hard way tells us that this won't be easy. I mean, it hardly needs to be explained. A hard way says it's going to be hard. A hard way suggests agony, toil, struggle. A hard way says, as Jesus says elsewhere, count the cost. A hard way says this is going to hurt. This is going to hurt. The easy way says salvation is easy. Just repeat after me. Just sign this. The easy way is the road of easy believism. There's plenty of room on that road. There's plenty of room for lax morals, lowered standards, and a variety of opinion. You get all kinds of arteries on that wide, easy way. Again, whatever you like. The easy way is the road of your own choosing, of your own understanding. The easy way is the road of choose your own salvation. Have it your way. Have it your way. As such, it is not the true way. It's not a relative way. The hard way is the only way to salvation. Remember the Galatians? Do you remember when they came to salvation? 
Do you remember the gospel that was preached to them? Let me remind you from Acts 14.22. This is the context of salvation and entry. Paul said this to them. We must enter. We must enter. He's talking about being saved. We must enter and can only enter the kingdom of God through what? Many tribulations. Many tribulations. And we saw that, of course, with the Galatians. In other words, entering salvation is hard. It's not easy. It just always strikes me as so odd to be kind of how many profess an easy salvation, an easy relationship with Jesus. Speaks for itself, a text like this. Let me say it this way. Claiming Christ while not experiencing any hardship or any toil because of that profession in Christ is self-deception. Claiming Christ while not experiencing any hardship or any toil because of that profession in Christ. Friend, that's self-deception. The way to salvation is hard. Church, consider your entrance. Three. Jesus says there are two destinations, life or destruction. Life or destruction. This here now leaves no doubt that salvation is in view from the lips of Jesus. One gate, one way leads to life, which for living people hearing it can only mean that Jesus is referring to life after death, eternal life. One gate, on the other hand, one way leads to destruction, which of course then has to be eternal death, hell itself. Church, this tells us that not only the road matters, but more importantly, that not all roads lead to Rome. I know that's been said. I know it's been taught. I know it's been preached. Not all roads lead to Rome. There are many, many roads that lead to a cliff that takes you into an abyss. Not all roads are okay. In fact, every other road but the road, Jesus will say, will lead to destruction. This is the stuff of self-deception because, listen, many are on this road, right? Picture, it's the en masse road. It's got the crowds. Many are on this road with many other people doing and believing many things. In fact, quite frankly, whatever they want to believe. And sure, listen, you may look around, friend, and say, that seems okay now. They're not hurting anybody. It looks just fine. And after all, it's progressive. It's modern. It blends in today. I mean, everyone is on it after all, right? And we're drawn to those crowds. Everyone is on it, so it must be right. Yet note the contrast here. The contrast is vivid. It's not the means. It's not the road itself that may seem okay, but look at it. It's the destination. It's the end that's the distinguisher. One end leads to life. One end leads to death. Jesus is contrasting two different destinations Yes, the road does matter. Yes, it does, says Jesus. Claiming Christ with no concern of the road you're on, claiming Christ with no concern of the road that you're on is self-deception, is self-deception. True salvation means you're on the road to life. Friend, consider your entrance. Four, Jesus says there are two crowds, few and many, few and many. Genuine salvation in Jesus Christ is not going to win any popularity contests. Never. That popularity is for the many. On the wide way, the easy way, with many people. Those spacious and safe ways are always man-fearing, they're always man-pleasing. 
and they are also truly devastating eternally. Saying it another way, true salvation, beloved, true salvation is rarer than you think. You say, well, how can you say that? Well, I'm not saying it. Look at what Jesus says in verse 14. Look right at the end. Jesus says this himself. He says at the end of verse 14, those that are saved, those that have find that right way, those who find it are few. Few. In other words, the real crowds, the real crowds will be in hell, not in heaven. Contrast that, the few and the many. Sure, there will be a multitude in heaven. We understand Revelation 19. There will be a multitude and a blessed mosaic from every tribe and tongue. No doubt about that. We cling to that multitude at the end of days. But this passage for here and now tells us the overwhelming majority here and now will be as far away from heaven as one can be. That's the majority position today. Claiming Christ while being liked and popular with everyone is simply self-deception. Claiming Christ while you think everyone else is doing it is simply self-deception. Authentic salvation means you are in the minority, you are in the few. Consider your entrance. Church, there's no middle ground with any of these. Can we grab a hold of this before we move on? There is no middle ground. Jesus does not, as we saw in Galatians 5, Jesus never presents neutral. Do you notice that in the New Testament? There's never a neutral ground presented. Oh, we love that. We love that neutral territory because it doesn't offend anyone, we think. But Jesus never presents neutrality. Jesus never says, ah, consider the third way. Right? There's life, destruction, and here's a via media in the middle. Jesus never says, I want you to consider this other option. If these two don't jive with you, if they don't jive with your coworkers and friends today, here's a third option, friend. You never see Jesus say that. Jesus says this. He talks very binary all the time. What does he say in this text? There are two gates, two ways, two destinations, two crowds, and only two. In other words, friend, listener, you've entered one of them. And you are begged to consider this morning which one you've entered into. That's the first consideration this morning. Now let's look at the next one in this passage. Consider your fruit. Consider your fruit. Look at verse 15 with me as we read the next section. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Westmount, we, of course, have covered fruit already. Remember, we talked about Galatians. We've covered fruit in Galatians in chapter 5. However, for the purposes of the context here, we need to consider the following. First... The reality, and you see Jesus make it plain here, the reality that something could be false. Do you see that? This is just an assumption out of the mouth of Jesus that something could be false. Jesus uses contrasting words here to describe the problem. And the two words he uses here are disease and health. Disease and health. We'll come back to that in a moment. But those are pictures of what's true and what's false. What's true and what's false. Today, when you think about 
that audacious suggestion that something could be true or something could be false. Today, I want you to think about our environment. The suggestion that anything or anyone could be wrong is scoffed at, is it not? People laugh at the suggestion that there's an absolute truth or something is certainly wrong. Modern society, mark this listener, modern society hates absolute truth. In fact, I commented to you Westmount before, it just strikes me as nothing short of silly. Now they're attacking mathematics. Is two plus two really four? That's far too objective. We don't like the fact that it's so hard and fast. We need to rethink our approach to mathematics. And I want to say to them, two plus two equaling four is the reason why your house stands up. And it's audacious to think that we would want to erase that and call it into question. But that's the so-called intellectuals of the day do not like absolute truth. Now listen, listen to me for a moment. If that is the approach to something so clearly objective as mathematics, if something so black and white as mathematics is being attacked and they don't like it today, if people have a hard time embracing true and false and earthly things, listen to me, how much more, how much more will they have a hard time with true and false salvation? Exponentially more. Won't be able to conceive it at all. Hence, the idea that a profession of Christ could be false, and you've heard this, you've heard this, the idea that someone could have a false profession of Christ, well, that's just plain offensive. Don't come to me, that, I don't want to hear of it. It's offensive. Yet this is precisely, look at the text, this is precisely what Jesus is saying. In fact, this is precisely what he's assuming when he uses the word what? False. That it is true. That's one thing. Secondly, we looked at the reality of something false. Let's look at the problem of something false. Jesus using contrasting words here we've alluded to already, disease and health, to describe a very dire problem. In other words, if it is false, it is diseased and it's not healthy. Once again, we come face to face with the fact that there is no middle ground. There is no third way. There's no fence sitting. There's no room for, I don't know. There's no, ah, a little of that, a little of this is okay. I like the blend, the hybrid. Something, friend, is either true or it is false. It's either diseased or it's healthy. And the problem is, if it is false, it is diseased. And if it's diseased, it will what? It will die. It will die. Now, that is frightening. And I think Jesus intends that to be. Especially with self-deception. Because you don't want to be self-deceived and have a disease that will lead to death. It is a matter of life and death. A few years ago, I was doing a hospital visit. And I went into a room, fully intending to minister to a lady that we knew, who was very ill. And it turned out for the course of this hospital visit, I ended up ministering to her roommate, who was sobbing uncontrollably through the whole visit. I turned to the roommate, and she had the end of her leg, this big bundle of uh, gauze and stocking there, just all this big ball of white bandage. From engaging with her in between sobs, find out that (laughs) just a few weeks ago, or whenever it was, a few months ago, weeks ago, or whenever it was that uh, she was in the hospital, she had stepped on something and cut her leg. And it was interesting, as she told me, she's like, well, you know, I just didn't think anything of it. I just so busy, and just had things to do, and I had a cut, and yeah, it kind of hurt a little bit, and she kept telling me how she was a real estate agent. And you know, they were really busy, they were selling many homes, and I just was struck how weaving into this account of how she ended up with no foot, 
She's telling me how busy she was, too busy to check on the foot that she had cut. Well, it turns out started to get discolored, and she just thought, well, that was bruising. One thing led to another. She couldn't check it. She just threw a sock over it. I'll never forget her really breaking down when she told me the doctor looked at her foot and said, it's too late. We got to cut it off. We got to cut it off. All because, all because she didn't do maintenance on her foot. She didn't do the thing that we should do with all things. Check it. Look at it. Beloved, it is true of our salvation. Do you check it? And not just because we want to be morbid and introspective, because the Bible tells us over and over again to do so. All the verses that we talked about this morning. How do we consider our fruit? That's the purpose of fruit. They're like the dashboard lights in our life given to us from God. How do we know if it's diseased? We look at our fruit. This is not introspection or cerebral or just sitting in a corner being pensive and looking at our navel. That's not what we're talking about here. This is a simple honest checkup. You do it in everything else in your life. Why not your spiritual life? These days, listen, we have been given a global pause button for a reason. There is never a better time to do a self-examination than right now. I know, friend, no matter what you're stead this morning, you have ample time to look at your spiritual health. And it's simple, you say, how do you do that? How do I do that? It's simple as this, fruitful questions such as this. Where is my affection? What, friend, is the greatest affection in your life? Where is your heart constantly drawn? It's questions like this. Where is my heart? What has my heart? What has swooned my heart? What's been the siren call for my heart? We, of course, saying that, I get it, can be self-deceived, as Jesus is saying. So we need an unbiased test. So let me give you this simple diagnostic that's been helpful in my own life. This is just an unbiased test that you can apply. Look at three things in your life. Nicely alliterated so you can remember it. First one is time. It comes down to this. What do you spend most of your time doing? If someone looked at how you spend your time, they would say, this is what they're most affectionate about. Two, what about your talents? All of us have gifts, talents, abilities. What are you using your talents for? What are you using your talents for? That will tell you a lot. Three, temperature. What is on your mind the most? What is that ongoing reel in your head the most? Who, what, whatever has your thoughts? Church, that's how you consider your fruit. You profess to be a Christian. Fair enough. You profess to be a Christian. But would someone profess that you are a Christian? Would someone profess that you are a Christian? Consider your fruit. Third, consider your will. Look at verse 21 with me. Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. In Westmount, When we think about a passage like this, we think, that is shocking. That is shocking. I mean, here you have a professing group crying out to God on that day, standing in front of Jesus on that day, and by the way, that day, you see that expression there, that refers to judgment day. That's that future, that day of judgment that everybody is headed for. So you have this group on judgment day after you die, standing in front of Jesus, Right, making an account for their life. 
And look at what they're saying. I mean, this is shocking. They say, Lord, Lord. I mean, they, you say, well, how can this be? In this picture of Judgment Day, this is the Revelation 20, great white throne judgment. How can this be? He's professing Christians standing before Christ. And you would say, before we dive in even further, they have all the markings of true followers of Jesus, don't they? I mean, let's look at them quickly. They have them all. I mean, consider the fact that they not only get the name right, Lord, they say it twice for emphasis. I mean, that's impressive. And more, they've done a lot of things. They've done a lot of things in the name of Jesus. I mean, that's got to mean something, right? In the name of Jesus, not even the name of themselves. I mean, that's something. They prophesied. Look at it. They cast out demons. Look at the real eye-popping things they've done. They did mighty works, big things in Jesus' name. And on top of all of that, I think you would look at this picture and say, what? This is a sincere bunch. I mean, they're very sincere. We, We would say that, right? They ask, in fact, did we not? I mean, this is the plea, right? If someone is like, I, I just can't believe that you don't want, did we not do these things? And all of that, yet yeah, Jesus, look at it, not only casts them out of his presence, verse 23, but also does what? Declares them workers of lawlessness. You say they did all these things, but Jesus says, your work is workers of lawlessness. Yes, that would be calling them evil. Jesus looks at them and says, you're evil. How is that? How is that? To these so-called Christians, Jesus says, look at it, I never knew you. That's not even I knew you at some point. That is, I never knew you. How? Well, the answer is found in verse 21. Look at verse 21 again. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but here it is, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. The one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That's it. It's what this group was doing doing and yes they were doing much a lot of smoke screens here they were doing much doing much doing lots of religion doing lots of spirituality lots of things and here it is that they willed things that they wanted to things that they defined oh they had lots of time for that but they had no time for what the father's will the father's will I mean, that's the implication here. It's as if the judge says, I understand you know my name. I understand you're sincere. I understand you said it twice for emphasis. I understand you did many things. I understand it drew crowds. I understand it was visible. I understand that. I understand that. However, you did not do what I asked you to do. You did not obey my will. I asked you to forsake yourself. I asked you to deny yourself. I asked you to repent of your sin and place your faith and trust in me. Not give me an alternate life manual. Place your faith and trust in me. I asked you to do that. That was my will. I asked you to come to me broken, humble, and in faith. Not proud and riding on your horse about what you'll do for me. I asked you to come low and broken. I asked you to find salvation in me and me alone. Not with other steps, not with other to-dos, not with something else you think is helpful to your eternal state. I asked you to come by way of me alone. That is my will. God says here, you sought salvation in the wrong religion. You sought salvation in the right Christian lingo. Just get the right Christian words right. Say it loud and say it enough. 
You sought salvation in your works and your wonders. Do it loud and do it more. And in the end, all you did, as noticeable as it was, was not my will. It's not my will. And if it's not God's will, and there is no neutral ground, then what else is left? Lawlessness. Evil. The words of Jesus here cannot be clearer, more sobering, or more arresting. Jesus says here, and I pray whoever you are listening, listen to the words of Jesus. On that day, many will be self-deceived. They go through life and they think they know him. But in the end, Jesus says, I don't know you. And it comes down to, friend, a matter of the will. In fact, let me make it more precise for you. When you think about following a will, it comes down to a matter of obedience. This is a matter of obedience. That's why I'm endeavoring to make this very practical for us this morning. Whose will... Whose will are you placing your faith and trust in? Whose will are you certain about? Whose will is it? Is it your parents' will? Do you feel certain of salvation because your parents do? Because you were brought up in a Christian home? Because you're from a heritage of the Bible and church? Is that what your certainty is in? Because your household and your descendants were religious? Is it your sentimental will? Do you get emotional at the thoughts of Jesus? Are you the type that always has a tear to be shed for something about Jesus? And because of that emotional will, you feel certain. Because you feel emotions for Jesus. Is it your reasoned will? And your certainty that's rooted in, look, look. I'm looking at the world and I'm just not bad. That's my reasoning. There's a lot of bad people out there. I mean, did you hear what happened in Nova Scotia? Do you hear what's happening in other parts of Peterborough? That's not me. My reasoned will says I'm going to be okay. Friend, no matter how certain you feel about those wills, understand this today and hear the text loud and clear. None of those are the Father's will. You feel very certain about those things, but they're not the Father's will. None of those are rooted, and here it is, in obedience to God. Simply, you may be following a lot of wills and desires. You may get it affirmed by many people, and it may feel right, but if it's not God's will, you're in peril. You're in peril. Consider this scene with me. Consider it. One of the reasons we see this tragic scene on this day is because of the pandemic of disobedience. And it runs far and deep today. D.A. Carson asks this. This is what he said, I quote, of today. In the entire history of the church, has there ever been another generation with so many nominal Christians and so few real and obedient ones? Unquote. Great question. Not only a great question, it's the right question. In what era of history have so many people, beloved, claimed to follow Jesus, but can be found nowhere near his church building on a Sunday morning? In what era can you find that? In what area can you find these defenses of being Christian, but wanting nothing of Christian? In what era of human history have so many people claimed to believe the Bible, but live in direct opposition to the Bible? In what era do you find that than today? In what era of human history have so many people claimed to love Jesus, but in reality have no time for Jesus, whether it's a few minutes to start or end the day? I mean, you wouldn't know it looking at their life, but they claim to love Jesus. Now saying that, let's be clear. I want to be clear. Please hear me, Westmount. 
No man is saved. No man is saved and enters the kingdom of heaven because of his obedience. Can I say that again? No man is saved and enters the kingdom of heaven because of his obedience. Can we just be clear on that? However, however, it is equally true that no man is saved and enters the kingdom of heaven who is not obedient. No man is saved and enters the kingdom of heaven who is not obedient. I pray that makes sense. Friends, consider your will. Self-deception springs from a fierce commitment to your own will. The more our will and desire is master, the more we are at dangerous risk. Christ says here, the one saved in the end is the one that does the will of the Father. Those standing before the judgment seat in that day lived by their will alone. And you can see in this text, it felt right, it seemed right, and they couldn't believe it on that day. Consider your will, church. Last one. Consider your foundation. Look at verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. You might be familiar, as you look at this simple illustration from Jesus, you might be familiar with it, and you might know it, of course, and seen it already, is the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the capstone illustration of Jesus' teaching. Simply, it involves two men that look very similar in almost every way. Consider with Jesus here. I mean, they're both home builders, right? They're the same. They both build home they both want to build homes i should say they both hear instructions and later they both face storms i mean everything looks about the same for these two men to the naked eye they might even appear identical however there is one important difference that jesus highlights here and it is this what they do with what they hear the difference is their response to the words of jesus This is all about response. Both of them hear Jesus' words, yet only one does something with them. And as this sermon from Jesus closes, this is your ultimate picture of self-deception. Consider again, the issue is not knowing what Jesus says. That's not the issue. It's not knowing Jesus' words. It's not knowing Scripture. It's not knowing the Bible. That that is never the issue. In Jesus' time, they knew the Scriptures. They knew it. What's on the issue here? They both hear. And how many, I would say, as we transplant that to today, is that the same thing today, is it not? How many know the Bible today? I cannot tell you, Westmount, how many times I have heard, even in these five years here at Westmount, well, so-and-so, they really know their Bible. They heard, they're not at church, they're not doing this, but man, they, they know the Bible better than me. This is the stuff we hear all the time. They know their Bible. How many know about Jesus? How many have heard about Jesus? How many profess Jesus? Yet of those professing Jesus, how many ignore his words and build elsewhere? How many are like the man in James 1, hearers of the word but not doers? How many fail the James 2 test and cannot show you their faith by their works, by their life? 
Church, how many hear Christ, profess Christ, yet at the same time ignore Christ? I would submit to you that number is countless. It's countless today. The world is filled with hearers. Many grew up hearing. Many talk about hearing. Many want to give a hearing. And many in the wake of hearing, here it is, choose a different foundation. They're like King Agrippa. You almost had me. Almost had me. I'm going to choose a different way. Although for a while, you wouldn't know. You wouldn't know. For a while, they would profess. Today, their foundation is exposed. Today, as they consider that foundation, and in a whole environment that's just in upheaval, they realize that they are sinking. That's the reality of what we see here. They're on sinking sand. And sand, there's one thing about sand. Sand may look great. It's great to work with, really pliable, when the weather is good. But once the storms come, it might as well be quicksand. Quicksand. This picture has been emblazoned on my mind. We lived for a number of years in California. And one of the things when you're in California, we lived near the coast and can take drives up and down the Pacific Highway on the coast there. And one thing that always struck us is these homes that are built on the sides of hills, right? These sometimes massive homes, sometimes on a stilt here. And you're like, how do you get that on that mud on the side of the hill? And, but they have a great view. But people marvel at these homes. And that was one thing. And then, of course, you would have a monsoon, which happens like twice a year in California, right? The rain all comes in like a one-week period. And what would happen to those homes? would slide down the hill. And you'd have people, and they'd be on camera, and they'd be tears, and I lost everything. And, and then what do you hear about those people? They're building another home, and guess where they're building it? On the same spot. And this is a cycle over and over, because it's about where the home is and what it looks like. And I couldn't help but think of that picture today in this text. Churches, we seek spiritual first aid over the coming weeks. This is what we're talking about. Your foundation. COVID-19 has exposed your foundation. And friend, I ask you, what are you standing on? Are you standing on stone? Are you on sand? Your house has looked great these years. You're well put together, but today you're sinking. You're sinking. What will you do? Well, you could be like those self-deceived, those in California that wanted that nice location, that nice view, even if it meant building on sand, it didn't matter, that's what you're going to do. Then when the storms came, you wondered why the house is sinking. Because they heard the word, they heard the warnings, but they still built on the sand. You could do that, you could hear the words of Jesus today, and you could still go and do your own thing. And your Sunday afternoon, and your Monday, and your week could look nothing different, really. You could still go on the same foundation. You could hear the call of Christ to the narrow gate and you can again go wide. You could hear the penetrating words of Jesus and stick with diseased fruit. You could hear these words and still trust in your own will and your own works today. You could do that. You could hear Jesus today and still choose to build on the next sandy hill. You could do that. Or today amid this pandemic, more than a stake in the sand, you could build on solid rock. You could do that too. You could build on, respond to the words of Christ, that sure foundation. A foundation that not only holds up to the storms and surges and pandemics that you'll face in this life, 
But more, and this is what Jesus is referring to here, the foundation that will weather the storm of God's wrath in that day. The storms now, friend, have nothing on the storm of judgment day. And will your foundation hold up to the wrath of God on that day, the day of judgment? That storm, that day that is coming after you die, for all of us, what will be your foundation in that day when that storm hits? Will you continue to be self-deceived and keep building on sand? Or will you be secure on solid rock, on Christ? This is, I pray you see, our necessary first step and first aid today. Consider your salvation. Father, as we consider our salvation, we pray that you would help us respond to your word. Father, I don't know if there's someone out there today who is hearing your words maybe again or maybe anew and is challenged in this moment with a response. Lord, I pray that you would move their heart, that you would give quickness to their heart. I pray, Father, that they would seek solid rock, not sinking sand. God, I pray for all of us, no matter our stand in you, to be reminded in times like this, when everything else is sinking and unstable, that our foundation is sure and secure. Our foundation is Christ. Lord, we cling to him. No matter if it's a shack that we live in, Lord, it's on the rock, the solid rock of Jesus Christ. We thank you for that. We pray all these things now in Christ's name. Amen.